Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, we have Stuart Weiss. He's a behavioral scientist, teacher, and writer. He taught at Providence College, the University of Rhode Island, and Connecticut College. Uh, Weiss's book, Believing in Magic, The Psychology of Superstition, won the 1999 William James Book Award of the American Psychological Association. And he's a contributing editor of Skeptical Inquirer magazine, where he writes the behavioral the behavior and belief column and a fellow of the association for psychological science and of the committee for skeptical inquiry his newest book out now is called the uses of delusion why it's not always rational to be rational welcome Stuart. glad to be here thanks for inviting me absolutely and so before we begin i want to read a pretty pretty epic passage from Stuart's book mm -hmm. so Stuart writes emily wilson's translation of the odyssey into english begins with the line quote unquote tell me about a complicated man Odysseus was a complicated man, and one of the goals of this book has been to remind us that we are all complicated people. We are a mixture of reason and magical thinking, intelligence and emotion. When Camus said, quote unquote, ridiculous reason is what sets me in opposition to all creation, I cannot cross it out with the stroke of a pen. He was talking about the burdens of consciousness and knowing what we know about life and death. But this book is meant to suggest that we are not in opposition to creation at all. Granted, we are not trees among trees or cats among animals, but we are just as much a part of nature as they are. Furthermore, some of what keeps us going is much older than the ridiculous reason we got, into, we got in the cognitive revolution. Natural selection is the ultimate pragmatist. It brings, to, it brings to each species whatever characteristics will get it to the next day. Wow. Okay, so love that. And then, so if we think about reason, right, we often think about it as an opposition to emotions or system one thinking, right? So we tend to put system two thinking in a pedestal, and we think of it as, as a way of, um, in terms of the opposition, we think of it in terms of like a battle where we have to sort of uh, like, let's say, cultivate one as opposed to the other. But in your book, you talk about the uses of what, you know, what I guess some people will call delusional thinking, which is, again, so contrary to what we think about in academia, maybe even in psychotherapy. A lot of my clients, when they come to therapy, they want to learn how to kind of subdue their emotions and kind of maintain a dominant level of control over them. But can you tell us about now kind of your understanding and your researches or research why delusional thinking can be sometimes good and pragmatic? And beneficial. Well, I mean, first of all, thank you for it's always wonderful for an author to hear his words coming back at him. So thank you for reading that section. And I, it is, it is uh, near the end of the book and summing things up. I, I mean, I, you know, I, I come from at this from a history as you know, as your introduction of me might suggest of, of rational thinking of, of the idea being that that reason is king, and uh, and that we should we should always be rational and reasonable. But in my work, and I you know my much of my time I spent on superstition, I kept bumping up against things that were clearly irrational, uh, and yet benefited people. And and so this book is sort of acknowledging that you know acknowledging that that we are complicated people that mm -hmm. that we are not just uh, you know we are not just trying our best to be reasonable all the time that there are things that are unreasonable and and don't make sense in terms of the rational choice model um, that still help us and and uh, so uh, I, I'm, I'm very happy that you you connected with it and that you that you appreciated it but um, but uh, you know the, the we are we we are benefited by system one as you say you know this is making use of the of the Kahneman and Tversky sort of system one and system two 
you know, obviously from an efficiency point of view, uh, if you can make quicker judgments, fast judgments with system one, that's going to be helpful. But this book actually goes beyond that to suggest that there are some things that we are drawn to do for whatever reason uh, that go that are not rational, not entirely rational, and yet clearly benefit us. And uh, and so I'm sure we'll get into the more specific examples so that people can know what we're talking about. But uh, but it's clearly true. And so this is sort of a this is sort of a for me uh, an act of humility. You know, after having after having sort of beat the drum of rationality for most of my career. This is like stepping back and and sort of correcting the balance and recognizing that that we are a mixture of of as I say reason and magical thinking and that sometimes the magical thinking actually helps and uh, it doesn't mean it uh, everybody will always be able to use all the things that are in the book as you know some of them are specific to certain people and not to everyone uh, but for those who do use them. Uh, in their lives, in the right circumstances, it's clear that clear that they help. Right. Yeah. And it's like when you think about some of the, I guess some of the, like delusional thinking, and then when we, uh, let me just actually give a kind of an example. So when you think about delusional thinking, we always think about sort of how it's detrimental to relationships. So an example that comes to mind is, um, so I know somebody who's currently in couples therapy. And then so when he's trying to attempt to talk to his partner about the, the sort of different ways that they disagree, and sort of maybe the different things that the partner kind of the missteps that this person takes in their relationships, uh, or in their relationship, the partner kind of like, she gets really defensive, she gets really defensive, she's really hurt, gets really offended, even. And she says, I, I don't I'm not I'm not doing anything wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm not a bad person. Right. So when we think about it that way, right, it kind of like it, you can see how that's sort of toxic to her relationship and you can obviously see how he's upset and he's like i don't really understand you know what's going on with this person i'm not really even sure how to make it work but when you kind of like put another sort of spin on it and how we use delusional thinking and love you actually say it's a, it's pretty natural right because for him i could see how he would get offended and he would say well this person clearly doesn't care about me right but that's not the only story of delusional thinking and love and um i, I don't know i guess love comes to mind because it's so prevalent and i would think that delusional thinking is so prevalent in love so can you tell us a little bit about some of the benefits of delusional thinking and love as opposed to just, you know, let's say getting defensive and saying, well, I'm never wrong or I'm right 90% of the time. Right. This is all your fault, you know, et cetera. Yeah. Like the belief in a soulmate for, for right. instance, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. That, so that, I, I mean, I, that I, I, I really enjoyed writing that chapter and I'm happy to say that, uh, that I've gotten a fair amount of positive feedback about it, but you know, the, the, um, it turns out that in many love relationships, uh, you know, if it's a tit for tat sort of thing, you know, like you do the dishes and I'll vacuum, you know, the house, that's not a that's not a formula for success. You know, that 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 what does work. Uh, and so it's sort of like an, if you approach if you approach being married or in a relationship as being like an economic you know, thing where both sides get benefits and it's a trade-off, that's likely to fail. And and it is true that um, that people want to hear something more than that. They want they want to believe that. Uh, and and there's an example, of course, in, involving my own life that I describe in the book. But 
But, you know, people want to hear more than just, you know, hey, this is a good thing and I'm going to do the best I can. They want to hear that we are soulmates, that we are, we are, there's something special about our relationship that wouldn't be true if we were with other people. And uh, so I tell the story in my, my, at the beginning of that chapter, uh, if you'll indulge me, uh, where where um, I was in a relationship with a woman, and as far as I knew, we were both very much in love, and uh, and I was having a conversation with her, and and I happened to say, I mean, I was actually going somewhere else in the conversation, but on the on the way there, I happened to say, you know, but of course, given all the millions of people in the world, you know, there are probably any number of people we could have found that we would be equally as, you know, as attached to and in love with. Like the conversation ended at that moment because she objected to that idea strenuously and did not want to hear that. She wanted to hear that there was something unique and special about our relationship. And in the end, that relationship actually didn't, didn't survive. So, so she may have been onto something and, and there is good research that suggests that uh, among uh, marriages and, and uh, that that uh, people who have an overly idealistic uh, view of their partner, right, and they and they've they've come up with clever ways to figure that out uh, in 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 the research, but but people who have overly idealistic relation uh, views of their partner are happier, and and the couples that that share that kind of thing are happier than those who don't. Uh, so far, the evidence does not say that it, that it prevents divorce. Uh, so divorce may be, you know, dependent upon other issues. But within the context of an ongoing relation, and that, and it's not just at the beginning. They've done they've done studies over time to to show that this that 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 continues to be the case over time. Uh, and so so it it shows that that's the case. I also talk about, you know, the marriage vow, right? So. So the, it, in many cases, uh, there is a, you know, it, Christian marriages in particular, they still sometimes have this phrase, you know, I promise to love and, you know, until death do us part, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the person saying that, unless they've been living in a tunnel their whole lives, uh, knows that half marriages fail, right? And, and so, so to make that promise is is a little bit tricky to do, and yet and yet and so and so in other words, in a way, you either have to be sort of ignoring the data and fibbing when you make that promise, or you're you know you you're just you know uh, being unrealistic. You're not being rational, and so so uh, so the rational vow would be like, I really love you right now, you know, and. And I'll do my best. You know, I'm going to do my best to make sure that this lasts as long. I like it. I would like it to last as long as possible. You know, and so once you say those words out loud, you realize how flat that's going to land. You know, mm -hmm. that people are not going to be satisfied with that. I mean, even if you attended a wedding and you were in the audience and the groom or the, you know, the one of the participants said, you know, well, I really love you. I'm going to do my best, uh, you know, and, and withholds the promise to to love you forever, essentially, right? Uh, it's going to it's it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be very good. So so, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting thing. You know, we we uh, lovers need to have something more than just like this is great. 
we're good. You know, this is a nice thing. And I think there are some, I think there's some reasons for that. I think that that once you've established that the relationship is a soulmate relationship or a special relationship, then it makes, uh, it, it means, if you if you've talk yourself into that, it means that other people are gonna be less attractive. So the, the idea of, the idea of being unfaithful somehow is demoted, right? Because mm -hmm. you're not going to get that special thing, right. you know. Unlike what I said to my partner at the time, you know, it, 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 you know, if it's a soulmate relationship, then then there's sort of a guarantee that straying is not going to get you anything as good as what you have now. And uh, so it's it's a it's an interesting thing, and uh, and and I think people reading this chapter have been very quick to recognize that that there is some irrationality. There's also, and I, I don't want to go on too long if you- No, please, uh, please. Stop please. If I, but, um, but uh, you know, the act of falling in love in the first place, right, is also not necessarily a rational thing, right? Mo most people say that uh, they fall in love at first sight, right? Or yep. that, you know, many people do. And, uh, and so whatever that attraction is, it's not, you know, somebody with a calculator making some kind of an economic, you know, decision. It's it's something else, and so um, so it, it's interesting that this is an area where clearly, uh, uh, you know, whether it's a good thing or not that we don't that we don't that we just sort of fall for someone uh, when we when we fall in love. I'm not sure. I'm not prepared to say that that's a good thing or not. But it seems to be a fact for many people that they that they're not. They're not sort of sitting there with a spreadsheet and thinking, well, there's Joe and there's Jill and there's, you know, who, who should I, you know, there's, you know, points of, of comparison and so forth. It's not like shopping for a refrigerator, you know, it's, it's something different. Yeah. And then so when I think about it, it's like it's kind of interesting because then it goes into the topic of motivation. So, I, I mean, I want to know what it's like for you guys in terms of this, too. So when I'm trying to motivate myself to do something, I tend to actually idealize whatever the goal is. So whether it's a prospective partner or um, let's say whether even it's the podcast, right, whether it's you know my own writing, whatever it is, I often idealize like what that vision is like. It's sort of like the Gatsby, the great Gatsby syndrome, where it's like if you eat you know, if it's not amazing, you kind of don't want to do that. So and I wonder if it's like if it's the same thing with love. I think, or I mean, I'm, I'm sure like anxiety safety is a component of it too, but I wonder with love, it's like, we can't get ourselves to motivate ourselves to take that kind of risk unless we believe the reward is immense. So I wonder if that's some, again, I want to hear your perspective too, but I wonder, Stuart, it's like, is that some of the, so that's some of what you see in the research that when people do think about love, it's like, it's not worth pursuing unless it's amazing because there's so much risk involved and there's so much effort involved and even potential, obviously just heartache in the kind of intermittent period as you are seeing the person i mean because you know people let you down people disappoint you is it that the only way for us to to stay motivated and to even get motivated is the only way for us to do that is to idealize whatever that end goal is yeah i i think that that i think that is part of it for many people the the you know some people in reacting to the chapter have brought up the possibility that that uh when people start a relationship sometimes they sort of hold back right because they are worried about being hurt right, right. And I don't really address that in the book, but uh, but there, but uh, I think that the you know the the fear of being heard is is something that can change change what I'm talking about. In other words, uh, the the sort of falling immediately in love, which I think is probably more common, but but nonetheless uh, both are common. 
that's the that's the clearly yielding to an irrational impulse or not 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 irrational necessarily in a bad way because love is love seems to be a positive thing um but but uh but not not uh using reason not using rationality to make that judgment uh but there are people who and and this sort of goes back to i in a different chapter i talk about defensive pessimism right uh, and and uh so for some people i think there is a sort of at the beginning of a relationship there may be a kind of defensive pessimism where they where they they say i really like this person but i'm going to take it slow and i'm not going to get hooked because you know and so on and that's that's a that's a whole different that that's a whole different thing but but um the chapter that i'm writing about uh you know the soulmate chapter is primarily about the people who 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 leap you know at the beginning and uh and 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 get, get into it but i think your point is is valid i think that 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 is true of some people as well Right. And it's like, and I wonder, and then again, while asking you, right, yeah. do you, I, can I just ask you the question to, to get you to answer it? Right. So, um, okay. When you kind of envision goals or love or whatever it is, right. Do you feel like you actually need to put it up on the pedestal either to feel safe or whatever else, but in order to just genuinely pursue it? Well, I'll be honest in my experience, uh, what I've done is I tend to fall in love very quickly, mm -hmm. actually. Uh, and, uh, to, sort of to my detriment, it, it kind of reminds me of your, of your chapter, or where you speak about uh, having a sort of a dangerous overconfidence versus a, a helpful uh, overconfidence. Oh. And yeah, so it, in my experience has been kind of that probably a dangerous. Oh, oh, can you hear us now? Oh, there. can you hear us now? Yeah, yeah, you're back. Oh, great, yeah. great, perfect. Yeah, yeah, so I was just saying that in, in my experience, uh, by falling in love too quickly, I've probably uh, been at that spectrum of sort of having that dangerous overconfidence, probably, uh, yeah. versus that helpful overconfidence. And I was, I was wondering if maybe, um, if it's all right with you, if we could sort of highlight the, the differences, uh, like what is uh, the distinction between having a sort of dangerous overconfidence versus a, a helpful overconfidence? Ah, good. Yeah. So in this is a separate chapter, and I I put it into the into the situation of, for example, uh, uh, in business or your work or or you know various contexts like that, and also in sports. Uh, so I do separate out uh, uh, certain areas where it's dangerous. So so one of the things interestingly, Kahneman, uh, Daniel Kahneman was asked. Uh, as I mentioned in the book, uh, what you know, human bias would you want to eliminate the most? And he said overconfidence. But, but I think he was thinking about it, and it's interesting. That's not necessarily consistent with some of the other things he's written about overconfidence. But, but uh, I think one of the things that he was thinking about was the crash. Was the was the two thousand and eight crash? People were overconfident about their ability to pay mortgages. Bankers were overconfident about how they thought they had controlled the risk in certain kinds of investments and so on. Uh, and so I think that's it. And, and I would say that in keeping with that, that the dangerous places for overconfidence are at the beginning of, a, of an enterprise, especially one that had potentially has a big downside. So, so starting a business at the, at the beginning or in the worst case scenario, starting a war right mm -hmm. where, where clearly there's a huge downside so many wars seems to have been seem to have been recently started with the idea that oh this will be a you know a cakewalk this will be easy 
and with within you know 20 years later you're still slogging away right and so uh but in a more real world situation like starting an enterprise your own business or something that's when probably coldly rational thinking, maybe even a little bit pessimistic thinking about how it could fail uh, and what, what the problems were that would develop. That's probably a moment when that is actually better, uh, but, but that doesn't come up that often. In other words, you, you only launch big you know, worrisome things once in a while in your life. On a day-to-day -day basis, when you're in the daily slog of you know, just coming to work and doing your stuff, that's where overconfidence, I think, really can benefit you because it will keep you motivated, keep you going. Uh, you know, you mentioned the, the idea that the goal is really shiny and attractive. That, that's the kind of thing that on a day-to-day -day basis is going, to, is going to get you up in the morning and, and keep you going. Uh, and if you're and if you're actually a leader, if you're you know if you're the boss or uh, you know uh, uh, supervising a group of people, that overconfidence can be contagious. And they're like, he's he's you know he believes in it, you know I believe in it too, and and so on. So so I think that that's the that's the sort of difference you were asking about. When when is it good? When is it not good? Um, and uh, and so on. I also talk about competitive situations like sports you know that 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 in those cases uh if you are overconfident now obviously sometimes your overconfidence is going to be slammed anyway you're still going to lose right but uh but but if you can be solidly overconfident uh that actually does help there's there's good evidence to that 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 uh that people who are confident about their abilities at the beginning of an enterprise, even when they're, you know, it's their, their uh, underdogs, uh, that, that that can help. And, um, and I talk about, for example, athletes who, who have tantrums, you know, like mm -hmm. McEnroe yeah. or, yeah. Uh, or once in a while, Djokovic will also, I, I watch a fair amount. Yeah, Tom Brady too. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, and the, and the commentators will say, uh, will say, oh, well, that's, he's psyching himself up. It's usually he, uh, he's psyching himself up. This is the way he deals with it. But, you know, my feeling is that that ignores the person at the other end of the court, right? That mm -hmm. if I were playing a player and they burst up, you know, breaking their racket and so forth, I would feel great about that. You know, that would really encourage me. Like I've got this guy going off now. Mm -hmm. And so, so the, the, Evidence, I, I believe the evidence suggests that that, you know, if you want to be competitive, you should be like a cyborg, you know, just keep coming, even when you're down, just keep coming at him, coming at him. I, get, I tell the story about uh, Yvonne Lindell uh, beating McEnroe for the first time uh, in tennis. And um, and he, of course, had that reputation of just always coming at you, just, you know, very low emotion and just, you know, coming like a zombie and uh, so I mean I no one wants to be a cyborg or a zombie on a daily basis but but in competitive situations I think I think it can help right 
Yeah, and sort of fusing these two ideas together, it also seems like in order for us to maintain some level of confidence. Um, well, actually, let me just give an example. So I remember when I uh, even still kind of, I still sort of do this to this day, but when I was like a teenager, and let's say, you know, going back to this idea of love, I would like not only just idealize the person, but I would idealize like my confidence and my ability in that relationship. So if you think about the way that we conceive of destiny, it's not just that like, hey, this person is amazing. It's also that I'm meant to be with this amazing person. So when we think about managing our emotions, and again, you know, building confidence, obviously, that sort of conception of, okay, not only is this goal worth it, but I'm also capable of achieving it. It sort of like puts you in this kind of euphoric state where like, this is just meant to be right. And it's like, not only can you motivate yourself to pursue it, but again, all of the anxiety or fear around it, it just, it sort of withers away. But obviously, I mean, what happens to me or what happened to me and what happens to, I mean, anybody who kind of has that perceived state is essentially it kind of all falls apart. And a lot of what I deal with in therapy is people who are like addicted to love, where for them, they kind of go into these states pretty like Alan would say, like, you know, he falls in love quickly. And then it's all of, it sort of falls apart because you don't really know the person. It's not really destiny, obviously. Um, and then what happens is not only are you let down, but you're devastated because it's like where your ideal is, it's so far down from what reality brings you. And I mean, if you're okay with my asking, because I really wanted to kind of get into this a little bit with you, but is that kind of what it's like for you when you fall away from that state? Just curious. Well, yeah. Well, what's interesting is, yes, uh, once that delusion is is broken, mm -hmm. essentially, uh, it's very disheartening, right? And uh, it makes one tend to want to be sort of defensively pessimistic right. Right, moving forward. And I kind of do default to that uh, lately. Uh, the thing is, though, um, on one level, being defensively pessimistic has led me to imagine every single possible scenario, right? And sort of deal with it before dealing with it and remove some of the anxiety that I might experience from, uh, uh, from the unknown, right? And in, in many ways, it's very helpful to me. In other ways, it's like a double-edged sword. Uh, it, weirdly enough, uh, by imagining every scenario, yes, once I encounter it, I know how to deal with it. But also by imagining every scenario as well, I'm kind of overthinking, and that may uh, come off in my behavior or my actions. And then the other person's kind of thinking, whoa, this guy is really overthinking this. He can't just be in the moment and go with the flow. Right. And so I kind of go between the two extremes. Like I could go with the flow, but then overdo it. <laughs> or maybe I will imagine every scenario and kind of navigate, but then I don't know, something isn't quite uh, clean about that action, if that makes any sense. Right. It's sort of like yeah. you go crashing down, right? It's like when the ideal is broken, it sort of it falls apart, right? Not always. I mean, sometimes it goes well, too. I mean, uh, let's not... I, yeah. Honestly, the defensively pessimistic strategy mm -hmm. a lot of times works in my favor. Right. Uh, and then I, I could sort of switch between that and then being in the moment, uh, ideally when I can. No. But... Uh, it is a challenge. It's definitely a challenge. Right. It's a challenge. Yeah. And and the thing is, is that I, I appreciate that very much that the, you know, maybe if you if you think of the analogy to starting a business, right, falling in love, like, like starting a business, in some ways, although it's not, I mean, there are so many people who just sort of, and, and of course, there's all this physical stuff as well involved, which is, you know, which is not rational, necessarily. Uh, and so, so, but, uh, but, if you think about it, um, if if you were to sort of prior to being committed, you know, uh, think about this, say, okay, this is what I know about this person. I mean, it, sometimes you can't know, right? I mean, that's, right. that's the problem. You have a lack of information at the beginning, but but you might 
you know, if there was a way to sort of do that defensive pessimistic thing at the beginning, uh, or, you know, do that, that uh, non overconfident thing at the beginning, as you would in a starting a business. And then once you decide to take the step, you go fully into the soulmate realm, then perhaps you would have protected yourself, you know, uh, in to some degree, but during the ongoing relationship, it, there is evidence that, you know, that the more unrealistic sort of we're special uh, aspect is is valuable. And so at that point, you know, too bad, you're going to get your heart broken, you know, if, if it goes south uh, at some point. So there's a balance that I, I suspect you're trying to, to achieve. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it makes sense. Right. And then the question is, it's like, okay, I could see it from an evolutionary perspective, because if let's say, you know, um, like mating is pretty short term, and then, you know, it takes like, let's say, uh, let's say nine months of incubation in terms of having a baby. And then, you know, really for protection, the baby only needs to be protected for about like four years. And then, you know, the father can, you know, hypothetically sort of move on. Right. But I wonder if that's not the society that we have, right. If we're for the most part, pretty monogamous and we do want to do, you know, develop long-term relationships. Um, how can that, if at all, how can that delusion become useful to us because it seems like especially even you know with what you're saying is that once it falls apart it's devastating so it doesn't go from here to here it goes from here to here right so it's like how do we how do we go from the point of like okay you know yes okay i get it maybe we're not soulmates but i still really like you and i want to be with you is that possible or is it just inevitable that you know once you have that soulmate delusion it's always a crash and then there's always devastation and then the relationship is just bound to fall apart yeah, I mean, this is this is beyond. I think I'm purely speculating here, yeah. but but I think that um, you know, of course, of course, it, it it as they say about raising kids, it's good to have backup. You know, mm-hmm. to just it's it's a big job. I've done it, and uh, as a husband, as a parent, but um, <clears throat> so anything that maintains that relationship over time uh, is good that there, there are weird evolutionary psychology theories about um, how, you know, <clears throat> men, <coughs> excuse me, I'm gonna take a drink of water. Mm-hmm. I'll take how a sip men, of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> how men, um, you know, can stray and that there might be an evolutionary reason for that. Uh, but, but I think that that's, I mean, we're, we're all beyond that now, but, <clears throat> but, um, I do think that that uh, that you know once you once the soulmate thing is is going and it, if it is going in your relationship, there may be moment to moment benefits and a lot of the things in the book seem to be sustained by the immediate effects uh, uh, of and obviously in the soulmate case, I think the effects are immediate and day to day right. Uh, whereas uh, you know the crash if it fails. Uh, is a one-time big hit that you're going to that you're going to have to take. Sometimes people, though, you know, by the time they split, you know, they're they're no longer in that soulmate thing. Right. Uh, especially in the case of marriages. I mean, if, if you're married or if you have kids, sometimes they grind along, you know, unpleasantly for quite a while, and then they let it go. So it's it's a different kind of loss in that case. Uh, than what we're talking about here. Um, So it varies depending upon the nature of the relationship, I would suspect. Yeah.
Yeah. And in terms of defensive pessimism. So first of all, Alan, I want to ask you how that works, like for you, if it does work at all. And then Stuart, I want to actually ask you in terms of like the research, what does the, what does the research tell us about defensive pessimism in terms of its usefulness, right? So when it can be used, how it's used and when it's beneficial as opposed to not, but when does it work for you if at all? Well, uh, for sure, when it comes to uh, managing expectations in a relationship. So let's say um, I met somebody, I'm going on a date for the first time, right? So I'm not immediately, uh, I mean, this is as opposed to what I was mentioning earlier, where I might fall in love quickly. I'm not there yet, right? right? I'll yeah. say, okay, um, there are many candidates out there, many, many girls that, you know, I could potentially fall in love with. Uh, so uh, making the one that I'm about to see and, you know, putting them on a pedestal, so to speak, and making them the most special uh, may not be good in terms of how uh, I'm going to uh, behave towards them. Maybe, maybe making it seem like I have a uh, healthy view of how this could go. Maybe, maybe this won't turn into anything. Maybe that behavior will come off. She'll sort of feel that I'm not sold immediately. Maybe she also has to invest something. Uh, your I, value goes up. In, in a sense, mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not immediately investing everything in her. I'm allowing also maybe the opportunity for her to invest as well. Right. By me over-investing, maybe that's not attractive. Like, whoa, why is this person into me so quickly? Right. Uh, I haven't done anything for them to like me yet. And um, and maybe being a little coy uh, allows for her to feel like, okay, maybe I should do something as well to maybe get my attention or something like that. Right. Um, there's that. Or maybe, uh, for example, um, let's say in terms of the podcast, let's forget relationships for a moment. Let's say we, we had a, a guest scheduled, uh, maybe let's hypothetically, let's say it was for last week. <laughs> And uh, we think they're going to come on at this time and we're going to uh, meet with them. And um, I prepare myself saying, you know, they may come on, they may not. Uh, I mean, ideally they should. We've discussed this. It should happen. It should work out. But if they don't, I won't be upset if they don't, because if they if hypothetically, if I wasn't prepared for that scenario and then it occurred, I would be upset. My emotions would be lowered. I'd be disheartened. It might lead to another action where I feel less optimistic about the podcast and sort of where it's heading. And that can create a sort of downward spiral. And so by preparing for a possible negative, uh, you know, consequence, sorry, negative uh, result, uh, I can you know, deal with that beforehand and, and not feel as bad. And uh, it, it, my, my emotions aren't uh, lowered as much. Right, right. I can continue moving forward and uh, believing in our purpose and goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Stuart? Yeah. So, so the uh, defensive pessimism is d defined as being uh, sort of overly negative in your prediction, despite a previous history of success. Right. And, um, and I talk about it in the I talk about it in the health chapter, uh, and uh, and I also talk about uh, an example in my own life, uh, which uh, was that I'll start there. That uh, you know when I first got a tenure track job at a liberal arts college, I you know was very excited. It was a wonderful place, and you know very fancy. And I had you know I'd been a public school kid, and I had gone to you know to uh, state universities 
whereas many of my students were like, they had gone to boarding schools. This is a, an expensive place. They'd gone to boarding schools or private schools. My colleagues, some of them went to Harvard and Yale, you know, the other faculty members. So I was like, you know, this is a really cool place and I would love to be able to stay here, but don't get used to it, right? Don't get connected to it because you have to earn tenure. And if you, if you don't get tenure, you have to leave, right? That's the way it works is that it, you, it's up or out. And, uh, and so I, said, I, I, I very consciously adopted this sort of distanced attitude, not unlike yours with the podcast guest, right? But where I, where I said, don't get used to it because, and the idea being that I would be so crushed, right? If I didn't get tenure. And, um, and I think it worked for me and I did work very hard and I did get tenure, but, but the, the funny downside of it was that once I got tenure, I couldn't immediately embrace the place. I couldn't shake. I'd been doing it for such a long time, this distancing thing. And it took me about a year to sort of get rid of it and say, you know, come to think of it, you really do belong here and you're just as good as anyone else. And, and, uh, and so uh, it, it was it's an interesting thing. And it is true that uh, the thing about defensive pessimism is that it protects you from its its goal is to protect you from hurt right with the future. But in the moment, it doesn't feel very good. You know, it, it would be it, I, I lost in a sense. Right. I lost about six years when I could have been sort of feeling embracing the place and enjoying it to the hilt. Right. Uh, and and, and uh, in fact, I lost more than that because I couldn't shake it, but that's the deal. In the health area, the example that I give, it's very practical, you know, the, the irrational behavior with respect to health in some cases can be useful. And um, all that, though it's again, nuanced, uh, like, like the overconfidence one. But, um, but defensive pessimism in health, interestingly, long before, the coronavirus, uh, our coronavirus, there, there were studies in Asia of people uh, when, when other pandemics that, we, that didn't come to our town uh, you know, were involved because they had prior experience with, with you know, SARS-1 and all those, those things. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it turned out that uh, people who were defensively pessimistic, I think this is a study done in Japan, were defensively pessimistic about you know the the virus that they thought they were going to get it right they were much more likely to do protective things like wearing masks and washing their hands and all that sort of thing in advance of the coming thing right mm -hmm. uh, whereas people who were overly confident or more confident uh, did not and so so there's a benefit again it's it's not pleasant to be that way to think i'm going to get it and so on and uh in the moment but in terms of actually doing positive things to avoid getting sick, they were there was that benefit, and uh, and so that that was good. Uh, the so so the 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 paradigm shifts when you're now you're sick. You've lost your status quo of health. You're below where you want to be. Uh, at that point, uh, defensiveness. I mean, pessimism is not going to be of value, right? That's then you're just going to accept your illness. You're not going to do anything. Here's where confidence and overconfidence is going to get you to do the rehab that you need to do, you know, to, to cope with it better and so forth. And so, uh, so it depends on this, again, it depends on the circumstance, but, but that defensive pessimism 
is of value uh, with an oncoming, you know, and, and you can remember what it was like when, the, when, you know, the COVID started to come to town, you know, there were some people who were very cautious and they did all the things. And today, some of them have not ever gotten COVID as a result of it. And whereas other people were much more, oh, it's no big deal, you know, let's go. And, and, and they got it, you know, so. Right. Right. And then even now thinking about it in terms of personality, you know, we always tend to think of people as being either really pessimistic or really optimistic, just like we think of like uh, with the Myers-Briggs test, right? We think that people are extroverts, introverts, etc. But if you really think about it, I mean, like even with Alan, right? So, I mean, it's easy to kind of say that like based on what you talk about, usually I would say, okay, well, Alan seems to be really optimistic, right? Based on just the conversations that he and I have. But if you didn't know this other side of him, right, you would think, oh, well, no, he's actually like, oh, I'm sorry, if you did know this other side, of him, you would think, oh, no, wait, actually, no, it's the opposite. It actually sounds like he's actually pretty pessimistic. So can we talk about a little bit in terms of um, what the self is and that you can't actually pin down people's personalities, although obviously in terms of the delusion, it's very easy to see it that way. So if let's say I spoke to Alan for about, I don't know, 15 minutes, I would say to myself, Alan seems really optimistic, right? As compared to like the norm, Alan's level of optimism is up here and people are maybe somewhere in the middle, or I don't know, maybe I think about it just in extremes in general, but the self itself right we tend to make these predictions based on these very limited data points on who and what we think of the other person and we tend to think we know them when again it's like if i thought i knew alan and then he said oh well actually no after you know the delusion kind of fades away i become super pessimistic it's sort of like mind-blowing you're like wait you're not the type of person i thought you were i thought you were supposed to be optimistic how are you handling this well now yeah yeah, and it's because you know it, it, you don't know him in that context, in that environment, right. or whatever. Yeah, so I have a whole chapter uh, that you're alluding to about the personality and the self, and uh, and uh, and this has been a hotly debated thing in psychology. Uh, there's a the the primary way in which people think of personality now is this five factor trait theory, where people are introverted, extroverted, you know, all all the different five traits, and uh, and, and that's thought to be a fairly stable thing throughout the lifespan, right? And, and, uh, and even across environments. But, uh, but the interesting thing about that is that it, 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 historically and up to this moment, it has been designed to be specifically not reflective of any moral aspect of the person, any, mm. any their, their, their ethical nature and so forth. And yet the interesting thing is that what we seem to care most, you know, at a base level about people is, can I trust you? Can I, are you someone that I can be with and know what to expect from you in the future and so forth? And, and those things, uh, that's really been in, a, in an interesting way, which I talk about in the, in the book, has been relegated to the field of social psychology. Social psychology's history, you know, in some ways is deeply rooted in the civil rights movement, in the Holocaust and other things that people wanted to understand. How could people be so horrible to one another and so forth? And so I talk about the the um, I talk about the Milgram research that shows that that huge numbers of people will, under the right circumstances, with an authority figure standing over them, will give 500 volt shocks to a person with a heart condition. Right, right. and uh, and sadly, that research 
has held up. You know that there it's been it's been replicated, and uh, uh, you know it, it had to be done somewhat differently because our ethical standards about what we can do in research have changed. But but basically the results seem to be the same, and there's very little difference between men and women in their willingness to to do this to other people. So so much of social psychology suggests that we are strongly influenced by the situation we're in, by the immediate setting and the demands of that setting. And that any number of us are capable of, I mean, it's not a happy message, right? But that any number of us are, are capable of, of difficult, you know, of bad and horrible acts. Um, I use as sort of a classic example of that in the book, I use the case of Patty Hearst, Patricia Hearst, who was a, uh, an heiress. Uh, she was the, the heir to the Hearst um, newspaper fortune, and she was a happy little heiress uh, at the beginning, you know, in her teens. She was kidnapped by a bunch of radicals called the Symbionese Liberation Army, and they treated her fairly harshly at the beginning of her time. They kept her in a closet for about a couple of months, and they bombarded her with, with uh, propaganda and stuff but ultimately she became a member of the group and she had and she participated in a bank robbery and other other illegal activities and she um, uh, she had many opportunities when she could have left the group and she didn't mm -hmm. uh, and so so uh, so you know she literally changed from an heiress into a gangster mm -hmm. in, in the sort in, in the course of just a few months. And, uh, and there's no evidence that she would have quit except for the fact that, that she was captured. And then suddenly she returns to her heiress status because again, now the situation is such that if she's not, if she doesn't take on the sweet, you know, uh, sort of image of, uh, of the heiress, uh, the victim, then she's going to get a very bad prison term. And, uh, and so she, she's an, I mean, obviously it's just one case and it's a very unique one, but it does sort of demonstrate the degree to which we can be molded. And the idea that we have a consistent personality that can be trusted is more uh, a, an aspect of luck, in my view, than, than it is of anything really dependable in that same way. Right. So it's like in extreme situations, not only can people change, but also sometimes people want to change. So it's not as though I would say it doesn't seem like she was brainwashed just based on the evidence, whatever yeah. that even honestly is. I don't really even know scientifically what we would, well, how do we even label what brainwashing is? But the idea there is that like there was a part of her that like sort of was attracted to these people. And the reason why she was there at these steakhouses or no, it's not steak. What am I saying? Steakhouses. The reason why she was staking out uh, yeah. and like, yeah. And so and the reason why she was shooting at other innocent and people is literally because she wanted to do it. But it's so interesting that it's it kind of works that way because you would never expect that from somebody again that you think you have a consistent like information or knowledge base on. Right, right. And and yeah, and, and, and there, you know, the, I also talk about like, you know, the, every time there's a sh not every time, but many times if there's a shoot shooting or a murder, right, 
you get this man, person on the street interview of the neighbor said, well, he just seemed like a normal person to me, you know, and he didn't, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> that's not always the case, obviously, uh, but uh, especially with these really bad shootings that we've had lately. But, but you know, that people are capable of unpredictable behavior if they're put in that right circumstance. And so, so uh, I, and at the same time, you know, as the consumer of other people, right, we need to believe, right, that, you know, you, the two of you need to believe that you can count on each other uh, and, that, and that, you know, that things will happen predictably. Without that, without that, then, you know, you, you, you wouldn't feel good about going on with the, the enterprise. And so it's an, it's an interesting thing that I, I believe that it is sort of a, a delusion that, you know, it's not, it's not a given uh, in the way that we think about it, but I understand why we need to think about it that way and that, and that we need to be able to trust each other and, uh, and so on. Right. Alan told me once something really important where, um, so because like I struggle with anxiety, I'm actually very rigid oftentimes in my thinking. So for me, when I think of people, I like to tell myself that I know who they are. So like yeah. often when I'll like complain about somebody to Alan, I'll be like, okay, this is why I don't like this person. This person is this, this, and this. Right. And Alan once told me, he said, you know, people will actually really surprise you. And I'm like, bullshit. Right. <laughs> I actually, yeah. When I actually took it seriously, I was like, oh, okay. I can actually see that. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm actually I'm not sure if you would call this defensive pessimism in this context, <laughs> maybe defensive optimism. I'm mm -hmm. not sure. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I would just imagine, oh, if that person like, for example, if you think, oh, this person is an asshole because they uh, they don't contact me or something like that. Right. Often for whatever reason. Yeah. It's possible that that's the case. Sure. Maybe, maybe they're not thinking of you. So of course you, you can sort of call them that. Right. But it could also be, Oh, maybe they're going through something. Maybe they're depressed. Maybe, exactly. maybe something else is going on in their life. That's monopolizing their attention. Right. Uh, maybe they do actually care about you. And that way that you want them to reach out to you isn't the way that they're used to reaching out to somebody. It's not something they resonate with, right. but they do actually, if asked, would say positive things about you. Mm -hmm. um, and I think of all these little different possibilities. So this way I'm not married to necessarily one. Th I mean, in my, it, this is kind of goes with uh, uh, my thing with ego, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. if, if I'm married to a certain belief about somebody, I will then, you know, uh, go on that path and perhaps uh, a negative result may, may come from it. Uh, and maybe having, you know, not assumed that I know for a fact, you know, what's going on in this person's head allows enough sort of mystery for us to then maybe communicate instead of me assume what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then maybe that'll take us down a, a more positive path and avoid any unnecessary uh, disagreements or right. uh any sort of rupture in the in the relationship right um but again I, yeah it's like it's just so much easier to do it otherwise to tell yourself <laughs> no i know what this person is going to do yeah. because this way i won't be hurt exactly no that, that this is great this is a great conversation first of all i have two things to say one is that 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 this is what you're talking about is a basic aspect of what i would think of as critical thinking yeah. right we you know somebody does something you either like it or don't like it whatever you're observing it if you leap to, you know, this is why I don't like them, or this is, you know, this is, then, then you've, you've immediately ignored this kind of, well, let's wait a minute. 
what are the possible explanations for this, which is most likely, are the other explanations still also likely, and so on. So that's basic critical thinking. That's like, do you, you don't leap to a conclusion, you first stop and, and try to determine what are the other you know, plausible hypotheses for what has just happened, right? Uh, and so that's that. Uh, and the other thing is, is that when we're, when we're talking, these examples, we're thinking about other people, right? When we think about other people, there's this thing in psychology called the fundamental attribution error. You know, when it, when it comes to someone out there doing something, for example, that we don't like, we immediately think that that's part of their nature. That's a, that's a trait that they show. He, he's always doing that, right? Uh, you know, he always hands in his work late, right? Uh, whereas if it happens to us, the exact same thing, then suddenly all the environmental impacts, you know, well, I, you know, my, you know, I was sick that day, my car broke down and da, 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 you know, all those sort of situational factors come to the fore and we, and we, we attribute our, the same action to that kind of thing rather. So we, I, think it's, I think it's important to recognize that those situational factors are real and they might be applying to this other person as well, right? And, and to, but it is true that from an, and I think this is part of the way, reason we think that this way is that in a system one sort of way, it's easier just to say, oh, that's him, right? That's a trait. That's the way he is or she is or whatever. And, uh, and so I, I love this. It's a great example. Right. Yeah, it sort of acts as a, like a, comfort, a confidence uh, preservation mechanism, right? right? So, so you can feel certain about the world, more secure. Yeah, right. But I, I always doubt uh, my, my initial impulses, either about a person or a situation, mm -hmm. only because anytime I've ever assumed before, it just... I don't know. I mean, sometimes it's it's right, and then uh, most times it's uh, it's not correct. So just letting it be sort of a mystery, not necessarily putting a label. Yep. Uh, I don't know. I also find sometimes I project also uh, my uh, my own thoughts or feelings onto others. Why do you think you do that? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? I feel like session. it's sort of an innate thing. Yeah. But yeah. So because I've noticed that, that's why I sort of doubt that right. impulse. You know, and, and now it. thinking about it, just applying the concept of the fundamental attribution error, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, I wonder if the rigidity is actually based in that, where for me, it's easy to say, okay, you know what, this person is a bad friend, or just like a bad girlfriend or a bad person, because this way, if it's situational, it's like, oh, shit, but that could be about me. <laughs> exactly. Or, right. or it's just more work, you know, like I, I, I can depend, the per depend on the person or I can expect certain things of the person under these environments, but, you know, are those present or not? And it's just, it's just, my, it's, it is easier to just do it the other way. But, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's, it, it, it's a problem. Yeah, you know, the, the business about uh, projecting onto other people, you know, there's also a thing in social psychology called the false consensus effect, where you, you just assume that other people around you have similar views on an issue. And we've all, I think, encountered cases, especially in our political world, where that can be a mistake, you know, where, where, where you, you assume that someone sees a political issue the same way you do, and quickly you're, you're corrected on that, so. Right. Right. So then in terms of personality, how do we begin to kind of move away from that concept? Like, you know, fully. Right. Because, I mean, I'm thinking about it I, I, for me, like the rigidity, I think, is important, obviously, because it helps me get a sense of safety or feel safe in potential relationships or move away from scary ones. But what do we or what can we do to sort of move away from that construct and not think about it so rigidly and so kind of uh, or be so enmeshed in it? 
Well, I mean, I, I, I think part of the message of the book is that is that you, that you shouldn't. I mean, in other words, in other words, in a, in a relationship that you think is based on trust, it's probably important to keep the delusion that this person is always going to be trustworthy and so forth. And uh, mm -hmm. but but uh, and and so I'm not necessarily one. And and by the way, this delusion and one other at least uh, or two other in the book are pretty universal, right? This is not just certain people. Uh, like as in the case of defensive pessimism, only certain people have that. Uh, but so this seems to be pretty universal and I wouldn't necessarily just dis, uh, distract it. But I do think that there are benefits. First of all, I mean, this I think critical thinking is, is important in terms of, you know, stepping back, especially when you're about to criticize someone. Right. Mm -hmm. You're about to have a bad thought about somebody or criticize someone. I think that's the moment when you should catch yourself and say, uh, well, wait a second. What are some of the other possibilities for why this happened? Um, and that's just that's just decent critical thinking. Um, but uh, but you know otherwise otherwise I, I don't think I have any any real suggestion about it. I do think that there's a benefit in that. It, I mean, my, I'm always drawn to the issue of 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 uh, punishment when, or or criticism or some kind of negative attribution. Uh, you know, because there's where it seems like we could really make a mistake and, and we could do some harm. Like if you give somebody extra praise when they don't really deserve it or something like that, I don't see any great harm in that. But when you but when you're going to do the opposite, then and and one of the things about this viewpoint, the sort of malleableness of personality viewpoint is that you often it puts your focus not on the person but on the environment that they're in and right. and and, you, and so in some ways it lets you off the hook it doesn't mean doesn't mean that if you break the law we're not going to punish you right or that or that there aren't going to be situations where you need to push people away because you can't trust them anymore or something like that um but it does it it does mean that your your assessment of the situation is less less of a lasting sort of uh, personality or or character uh, criticism of the person and more of a you know this person is just not in a place in their life where I can I can you know embrace them in the same way and I think that's a good thing I think that's I think that's probably a more honest assessment than our sort of pigeonholing people with labels. Right. And uh, sorry, and also just connected to that, uh, what you were just saying about praise, uh, not having that much harm. It, I mean, I think I think we underestimate uh, sometimes how much of an impact we really can have on somebody's personality. Like right. a lot of times we we think that, uh, all right, this person, like like you just said, we put a label on somebody and we think that's who they are and that's it. And, you know, if it's, it's something we deem negative, we try to stay away from them. If it's positive, we try to get closer, but then there's things that we can do, right? I mean, for example, people like to, uh, or tend to stay congruent to what they believe is their identity. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, technic, I mean, arguably speaking, if you're, if in your interactions with somebody, say it be a friend or an acquaintance, you sort of, uh, say things like, Oh, you seem like a friendly person. I mean, this is a little basic, maybe not quite as basic as that, but maybe if you sort of craft an identity uh, for them in a sense, like uh, you have this trait, you have that trait, they may actually try to stay congruent to that right. in your interactions with them. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that could also steer things in, in yeah. a positive way, as opposed to uh, saying something negative about them, perhaps, right. maybe. Yeah. Yeah.
I think in the positive domain, there is some evidence to support that, that yeah. it's that that if you give that positive feedback in a trait like way, right, that they may that 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 children, for example, you know, you're a good worker, you know, uh, you're you're a hard worker, that that kind of thing can, mm -hmm. can be beneficial. Right. And I think that this is going to take us now into the free will topic. But I think what you're saying, I think what you're saying is that essentially, as best as we can, because obviously, we can't have a fully, you know, kind of complicated or nuanced view of all of the factors involved. But I think what you're saying is, when you're thinking of a person's judgments, decisions, etc, what you should be taking into account is their particular habits, whether or not you want to call it personality or traits or whatever, but let's say their tendencies, dispositions, whatever, and then you take into consideration, again, you're not gonna have a full account of what's going on in their lives, but as best as you can, and a full understanding of what the actual factors are around them, right? Sort of the, their circumstances. So if you're taking these together, what you're essentially saying, okay, is that maybe most of the time they're going to have these traits and dispositions or tendencies, but, you know, in this particular case or that particular case, you know, factors are going to be so overwhelming that they're going to choose otherwise based on like, let's say other particular, uh, let's say, you know, desires, uh, you know, goals, whatever, right? Maybe even, you know, particular genes that they've kind of inherited too. So in thinking about it this way, how should then we think about Free will, right? Because free will is <laughs> it, it, the ultimate delusion, right? It's the ultimate illusion, delusion, whatever. This is something that's fundamental to all of us. When people argue about free will, they tend to get incredibly offended and defensive about it. So yeah. when we, right? So when we think about free will, right? How can we think about it in a way that's both obviously, or if we can, and both in a way that's sort of truthful, but then also in a way that's helpful in us to us or to us in the kind of social environment to help us adapt, survive, and thrive. That's great. Well, of course, this is the big one, right? I, I saved this one to the very end of the book. I hoping that I would that I would draw people along and they would, you know, give me some credibility. And then when I hit them with the hard one, that they'd be ready. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, so so I think this is I, I I this is one of the reasons I wrote the book actually because I had an interest in this before I got the idea to write the book and I did teach a class on the illusion of conscious will uh, on on free will and I used a book by Daniel Wegner called the illusion of conscious will as the main text and it's a it's a great book and and basically I make several arguments in the book for suggesting that. That first of all, two two claims that I make. One is that that our sense of consciously, you know, doing things is is an illusion or a delusion, and that and but that's the second is that it's that it's useful to us in a number of ways. And so so um, so I mean, the evidence for the first claim that it's that it's a delusion. There's several. I mean, and this has been debated since the beginning of time, right? Philosophers and 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 psychologists and others so so um first of all that i make a sort of a logical argument which is that if you think about the grand scheme of the universe right the galaxies in space and everything you know the planets you know we don't have any problem thinking of that as being completely deterministic atoms molecules chemistry physics billiard balls going where they want to go or that where where they're going uh we don't think about a galaxy like the reason it's going off into that corner of the universe is because it's curious about what's over there right we don't we don't do that right that's not that's not a problem and even here on earth you know most of what we encounter we don't attribute any choice or will you know to to what they're doing we the the uh you know it's it's somewhere between us and earthworms, you know, 
plants, nothing. The large number of animal species on the planet, we do not attribute free will to them. Uh, maybe our dogs and cats, some other species, dolphins or something, I don't, you know, uh, primates, but certain primates, but, but, uh, but somewhere there's a line that's drawn and, so, and, the, and somehow the rules are special in those cases, that, that somehow there's this idea of a non-material, you know, will or, you know, object that is somehow, a, you know, that, that's deciding, right, and is somehow affecting a material object. And, and that's, the, that's the problem of dualism, right? The, the idea that you have a non-material chooser, right? It's deciding, it could do either thing, anything. It can do whatever it wants. And, and it makes us do, physically do things. And, right. and, uh, and that's just, that just, to me, when you think about it in the grand scheme of things, that, that there would be these special rules just for these tiny, you know, on this one planet over here, uh, just us, that seems uh, implausible to me. It seems, it seems more like a religious belief than a, than a scientifically defensible one. So that's the logic, one logical argument. Uh, the other, the other uh, part of it is this, in, there's a new and sort of interesting field that's developed called experimental philosophy. And, and it's actually philosophers, philosophers usually just argued and reasoned, right? That's how they did their work. You know, they would, they would just argue with each other and, and try to work it out. Uh, but these folks are philosophers, but they're actually doing experiments. And they're, they're, they're getting at the way in which normal people uh, reason about problems uh, through collecting data, very much like psychologists. And one of the things that comes out of that research is that when you think about somebody doing something, uh, your, your judgment of whether they had a choice or not, right, is, is strongly influenced by whether you wanna make them morally responsible for that act. So, so for example, and this, I just talked about this the other day and it's a, on Friday in another talk, and it's extremely timely at the moment, but there, one study that, that shows this is a case where uh, people were brought into the lab and read a little scenario. And the scenario was about a woman who had become pregnant. Mm -hmm. She goes to the doctors and she discovers that, according to the doctor, that the fetus has a, some kind of a uh, problem and it, she would have to go on a special diet throughout the pregnancy. And if she doesn't, the fetus will die within a month, right? So she goes home. She begins to think about it and she says, you know, come to think of it, I'm not sure I'm ready to have a child. I'm not sure I could be a good parent. Uh, this isn't the right time for me. So she doesn't go on the diet and the fetus does die within a month. Mm -hmm. Now they, they asked participants, did Sarah, this is the name of the, that they gave the woman, uh, did she allow the fetus to die or did she make the fetus die? And of course, they also asked people uh, beforehand how they whether they were pro-life or pro-choice, right? And and what happened predictably is that the the pro-choice people said she allowed the fetus to die. The the pro-life participants said she made the fetus die, right? Mm -hmm. So so 
obviously they would have had a, a more severe moral judgment on what Sarah chose to do, chose to do. And, uh, but, but it, you know, one of the, the main objections to, to discarding free will as a, as a, as a co real concept, one of the main objections to it is that people think that we need it in order to make judgments, moral judgments about people, right? And if you didn't choose to do it, if you were compelled to do it, that's different and so forth. And so, so you know, I understand that, but you know, whether we have free will or not is sort of a factual question. We either have it or we don't, right? right. And, and, and of course we use it in, a, in, a, in moral judgments and in punishment and reward and so on, but that's secondary, right? That doesn't have a bearing on whether it's true or not. And so, so that's one of the things. That's why, for example, the large group of philosophers, largest group of philosophers are what they call compatibilists, mm -hmm. which means that they, they accept that determinism is real, but somehow they think that free will in humans is not incompatible with that. I've never been able to quite get my head around how that would be possible, but, but that's their view. Right. And if I'm not going on too long, I will tell you the last argument please which is that you know as individuals our only evidence that we have free will is a feeling right we feel like we're doing things right and it's very subjective and i feel like i'm you know deciding to move my hand like this and so forth you know and uh and the problem is that that feeling is highly unreliable and and this is where daniel wegner in his book he talks about many situations in which you can be fooled into thinking you're doing something when you're not, right? Like, like he, he gave an example of be, going into a toy store and, and a video game is there. He grabs the joystick and he starts playing the game and making the monkey jump up and down or whatever it was that's going on. And then all of a sudden, start game flashes up on the screen and he realizes that he thought he was actually making the monkey move because he was doing the joystick thing and uh and he had nothing to do with it it was playing it was a de it was in demo mode and it was going all along so that's you know believing that you're doing when you're not right and then there's the ouija board case where if you're playing on an ouija board you're obviously making it move, but you don't believe you are. You don't feel you are because there are two people involved and it's unclear as to what's going on and so forth. And there are many other examples. He did laboratory studies that showed many cases where he could fool you in either direction, either to believing you're doing something when you're not or to believe you're not doing something when your body is in fact doing it. And, and once you look at that data and realize that you know, we're depending upon a subjective feeling uh, for our belief in this thing, uh, then you realize, and as a psychologist, of course, I'm very much aware of how we can be fooled in these different ways. I mean, superstition itself, which was my first topic uh, that I first worked on, uh, is a case of uh, an illusion of control, right? You think that by doing this superstition, it, it's going to have an outcome, so... So those are my those are my arguments. Uh, not everyone will be convinced, but I think for me it, it's 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 a tough lift to suggest that somehow we have this non-material thing that's doing it. 
Yeah. And this, and I love the argument that you bring up against uh, facilitated communication. And so for kind of, for those who don't know, facilitated communication was a popular, I don't know if you, I guess you would still call it treatment. So it was a popular treatment with quotes, a yes. uh, treatment model for autistic uh, children or people just in general. And the idea was essentially once it was sort of debunked, I mean, people were devastated by it because they've invested so much time, money, kind of energy into it. And then, so I would wonder in connecting this to just a broad concept of free will, how come you think, first of all, I mean, facilitated communication is a little bit more obvious because again, so much was invested into it, but how come you think it's so devastating for people to kind of uh, admit or at least consider the fact that free will may not actually be what you think it is? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, in the, in the case of the facilitated communication, it, it meant the difference between a person being an intelligent speaking person, right? Um, and, and them not. And so these people had come to believe. And by the way, I will tell you that it's not, it's not gone away. It is, mm-hmm. it's come back uh, stronger than ever before. And there are different versions of it now, but, wow. but, uh, but, you know, th- that's the appeal, right? Is that, is that, you know, and for a parent, think about it, you know, you've never, your child has never said, I love you in their whole life. They have not, in, nothing at all has been really come. Th- and, and so suddenly now they're speaking and writing full sentences and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but uh, so it, that's why it was so devastating. But, but I do think that, um, you know, it, it's a cultural thing. I mean, it's a strong cultural force. I mean, you know, in a weird way, Christianity historically has has struggled with it right because because on the one hand according to some uh views you know you you had to behave in a certain way in order to get into heaven to get the reward right and and yet at the same time god is uh supposed to be all-knowing right omniscient so like god knows where you're going to make it or not anyway right and it's just sort of like how can those two things be true um free will seem to be necessary uh, for people to do, and for, exa- for example, to do bad things, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so, um, so that, and then, and then, you know, we do, I mean, part of the, part of the reason why I think it's so ingrained is based in its usefulness. You know, it is the issue of, of being able to control other people, to make judgments about other people, because, because we're, you know, we're an intensely social species. We are, you know, infants cannot survive without someone else at birth. And, and we, we work in groups, right? We have to have work in social groups. And so, so the ability to, to control other people's behavior, the group being able to control individuals' behavior is very, very important. And, and that feeling that I did something, right? So in other words, you know, let's say that you do something for the first time, you feel that you've done it, right? Not somebody else. Uh, and then you get punished for that or rewarded either way, really, uh, then when you do that act again and feel yourself doing it again, that that history of reward or punishment is going to come, become, you know, uh, to the fore and it will affect your behavior later on. So so I think that I think that we've established this this. I mean, we, we actually have evolved this. Uh, for for important reasons. Also, just uh, on a basic level, I give an example in the book uh, of uh, the steering wheel, right? Mm-hmm. Like where you, you know, you're driving down the highway, you have your hands on the steering wheel, and the steering wheel turns to the right, and you go off the road, right? Well, if you 
if you were the one who did that, that's different than if it just did it on its own. And so, so being able to, and, and you know, there are many situations in which our body might move, right? Uh, for various reasons. And being able to know that you didn't do it yourself, it didn't come from you, it came from somewhere else. Just that simple discrimination is, is of, of great value to us. So, so uh, I think there are practical, but also social reasons why we have this feeling. And, and it has been used over time to, to, uh, to help us, to help us survive. Right. But I also think on top of that, it seems like a lot of people have a misconception of what we mean by, well, not even we, I'm not a philosopher. Yeah. So, uh, but what people mean by, uh, by determinism, I think they think of it as it's okay. It's either the universe controlling me or some external force, or it's me being able to control myself. Right. Um, it's sort of like the, these two extremes where it's either, again, it's the universe sort of uh, whatever, however you want to call it, right. Your universe, I don't know, the cosmos or whatnot. It's sort of like, I'm being sort of imposed on as opposed to free will where it's like, well, I'm free to make a decision, right like libertarianism. But that's from what your argument is, is that's not the actual right way to think about determinism or even compatibilism, if that's what we're thinking about. It's not so much that there's an external force upon us that's not actually determinism. So can you tell us a little bit about that? What do you actually mean by when you say free will doesn't exist? So what is it that? <laughs> well, so, so I think that from a psychologist's point of view, in simple terms, you know, what we're doing right now, whatever you're doing at any given moment, is, is a feature of a number of things. Obviously, you have a genetic inheritance. You, you have certain abilities that you've, you've acquired through, through your genes and, and the process of evolution. You also have a long learning history. You know, we are, I'm, I'm 70 years old now. So I have a long, long, long history of various experiences and I've learned and adapted my, you know, over the, my lifespan for that. And then finally, you know, there's, the situation you're in right now, right, which which is is drawing upon both those other other forces, and I think that when it comes to uh, when it when it comes to our sense of free will, uh, there, you know, when we're being affected by very weak forces, right, like like where where the where there are parts of our history that would pull us in one direction or another. Right. And that and it depends on where we are in that moment. And that's that's when you're most likely to feel free. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas whereas, you know, if you're being compelled in one way or another, and we are often in many situations like there's really no choice. I have to do this. I'm going to do this because I don't have any alternative. You don't feel, you don't have the same feeling. You don't have the same. It's you're you're under the sway of a more powerful force at that moment, and you just do what you have to do. And so I think the between those, you know, the the, the various aspects of what you're doing. I mean, that you know, for example, you know, yawning, right? Like so, yawning. Did is that free will? Uh, I don't. Seems know. like it isn't. Coughing, coughing, right? Is that free will? Did I, you know, not, not, not so much, right? Um, you're, you're kind of compelled, and you don't feel like it is. But you know, choosing what to put in your next sandwich. Well, okay, I could go this way, I could go that way. It depends on how I'm feeling today. You know, that's those are the situations. Again, I would suggest to you that that's all to some extent deterministic based on your your long history what's available in the situation and so forth but your feeling of freedom is likely to be much stronger in that case because you're you're under the sway of sort of a lot of competing relatively weak uh, influences oh Does interesting that help? 
Yeah. So, so just to kind of try to conceptualize it. So is what you're saying is that like, let's say hypothetically, if there was an addict, right? So an addict would say, well, like you don't understand how much, how like significant or how strong the temptation is, right? It doesn't feel like I have the will to put it down, like whatever, you know, your drug of choices, cigarettes, alcohol, whatever. Right. So it's like, it doesn't feel like I'm able to, but when it comes to like, let's say coffee, right. It's like, when I'm thinking of what should I choose, should I choose like a latte or a macchiato? Well, I mean, probably one desire is going to outweigh the other, but it's like our perceptual ability abilities can actually tell which one way outweighs the other, right? So it's like, we can't say that this desire is sort of like tipping the, here's the tipping point, right? It's like the macchiato seems to like, you know, be more significant than the latte or the desire for it. But because we can't tell, it seems like what we're thinking is that, oh, it means that we must be able to choose. Whereas right. let's say if I had a deep desire for the macchiato and I really was like, oh, the latte seems like a poor choice. It would feel like there's something inside of me that's pulling me toward it as opposed to my own volition. Is that it? Exactly, exactly. And so, and so, and, and so, for example, in the case of the addict, you know, first of all, we can credit him or her as being, uh, you know, we understand that we would accept that as being valid, you know, that they don't feel as though they have a choice. Right. And secondly, we kind of kind of figure out how they got there, right? We understand what that is. But, but, you know, many of the other choices we make in life are ones where, you know, we're no longer in touch with what's causing it. And, and there are also things that, you know, your choice of a macchiato versus a regular coffee or something can be as simple as like the color of, in the room at that moment. And you may be completely unaware, right? And, and or some smell that just hits you that you didn't, you're not aware of it, but it's influencing you. Or memory. Exactly, exactly. So, so those are the situations where you're going to feel like you're making a choice. But I would suggest that, that to some degree, they're just as determined uh, as others. It's just that we're, it's for the observer, it's less obvious that that's the case. My God, I love that. And I really love just how the book is structured. I like that you go from, you know, these sort of everyday or kind of mundane uh, sort of illusions or delusions, and then it goes right into free will where you're like, wow, holy shit, where did that even come from? Exactly. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And, and then I then I feel like I need to get out of town after after that chapter because I've, I've pushed it as far as I can. So, uh, but uh, I'm glad you, glad you like the book. I'm really, really uh, happy to hear that you that you responded to it. Yeah, absolutely, man. It was, I would say it's out of all of the books in 2022. I mean, obviously, you know, we're still in June, but I would say it's one of my top top five books of the year so far that's for great. me as well. Yeah, uh, that's, that's an honor. That's really great. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. I tell you, it was, uh, I don't know if you could tell from the book itself, but, but I've written, I've just like my fourth or fifth book, I think I've written in and uh, this one by far was more personal. And, and I felt, I felt I had a deeper feeling as I was writing. It was, it was a, a pleasure to write. And, uh, and I felt as though I was making a, a, a sort of a different kind of contribution by writing it than I had in my previous book. So uh, I hope that that came through for you and it was an enjoyable read as well as something that you learned from. Yeah. And what I love the most about it is that it wasn't your typical self-help book. It wasn't like, oh, hey, how to overcome system one thinking, which obviously has its values. I'm not saying that's bad, but I like the different perspective because for me, if anything, I actually struggle with empathizing with, you know, what we would consider human nature. So I have such a like, and it's funny that I mentioned this toward the end of the podcast, because maybe this could have been an interesting conversation, but I have such a deep disdain of irrationality that for me, it's like, it's so hard to think of it like in a, in a sort of productive or beneficial way. Yeah. No. Right. I connect to that. So uh, ever since I've, I've known you, yeah. right, 
I've I've felt that, and it's actually kind of rubbed off on me uh-huh. in, in some ways. <laughs> in, in some ways, I've actually uh, made an attempt to sort of uh, dissolve any delusions I had about the, the world or, yeah. or life. But what I love about your book and what I connected to in your book is uh, that there are actually in, there there is a a rationality to using delusion in in the sense of being able to uh feel more fulfilled yeah. or or there, there's a practical use to delusion right. and it's something that couldn't have come to me in a better time because um i've actually started to once again try to sort of embrace delusional thinking too but in a in a in a sense of uh like pragmatic pragmatically yeah, yeah exactly mm-hmm. uh because i've tried i tried being incredibly rational but then yeah. it kind of took the the spice a little bit out of life yeah, it does. that I once had. Right sorry, now, like, I I'm so it. sorry. I ruined his life. No, no, I, I kid, of course, but yeah. uh, but no, it, it's no, but it's, what's great is that um, your book kind of gives me the confidence to sort of embrace that again, uh, because I, I was trying to dance between rationality and delusion, and then uh, seeing that there are uses to some some ways of delusional thinking it's it's actually very it's nice to see it's refreshing actually right it's like it doesn't make you stupid or foolish to sort of engage in them because the idea is that they're natural and it's like you know in some way i mean the reason why they're natural is because they're evolutionarily adaptive i mean we wouldn't have evolved them. yeah i i started to sort of go towards a sort of black and white kind of way of thinking about it i used to be uh, not incredibly delusional. I tried to be rational, <laughs> <I hope> not. <laughs> not not incredibly, but you know, with yeah. a little bit of rationality. Uh, and now I feel like I'm finding that balance thanks to your book. So. That, I mean, that, that's exactly the process I went through as well. You know, I mean, in the sense that I was always, you know, skeptical and rational and all of that, and uh, and it was very freeing and sort of uh, welcome to to be able to say, hey, wait a second, like let's be honest about it. For these cases, not everything, and of course, we're in a world right now where there some people feel there's no truth, there's nothing, you know, uh, right. and things are very crazy. So I was very self-conscious about that as I wrote the book. But but just to be factual about it, there are certain kinds of ways in which uh, something that wouldn't be strictly rational has practical value for those individuals, and uh, and so this is a, an attempt to sort of re- reconcile that and 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 acknowledge that that this is this is fact that's that's why i come back to the odysseus uh and and the complicated people that we are at the end of the book oh by the way because i actually really love that and it's interesting that we're coming back to the beginning so can you tell us a little bit about how the odysseus story is pertinent especially in relation to the achilles one and Troy? yeah well on a personal level i read that i read her translation over the pandemic which i thought was wonderful uh, uh and she's writing a translation now of the iliad which will come out i think next year but but um but you know he's he's a he's not a, he's a person who changes adapts adapts to his environment right he he the, there's a whole question about whether odysseus as he goes through all these these challenges to get back home he just wants to get home to his wife and son um that 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 he has to like lie a lot and he has to do all these things he and he there's a point at which you begin to believe that he does it he lies more than he even needs to right but he but he uh uh and so the question then becomes is he a good person or not can we if uh, he succeeded and in that sense 
that's that's an you know that's a judgment that is positive, I suppose. But but is he is he actually a good person or not? And so what the basic idea here was: I have complicated my own view of human behavior uh, by writing this book. And I thought that that was a useful thing to say. And, and the idea of survival, right? In other words, uh, the, the, the Odysseus does succeed and gets home, right? Um, and so that, that is, to me, wasn't analogous to evolution, right? Evolution doesn't care, has absolutely no stake in whether we're rational or not, right? Natural selection just is a process of getting to the next day. Right. And uh, and so I, I recognize that. And that's part of the sort of pragmatic view of the book. You know, I talk about William James at the beginning of the book. William James had a you know, he wanted to sort of allow for belief in the afterlife and in and religious belief. And one of his justifications for that was that there are tangible benefits now for, for some people for those beliefs. And so that sort of pragmatic view. Uh, is part of what is in the book as well. And I, I think Odysseus sort of uh, characterized the dilemma of that uh, for me in a nice way. Right. And it was interesting that in terms of like that kind of uh, dichotomy that you have Odysseus as the bad guy because he's like a shapeshifter and then Achilles is the good guy because he's kind of remained the same. But it's not it's not really that it's much more complicated than that. Again, situations are important. And if anything, for Achilles, uh, from what I remember about the book, there wasn't much change. So there wasn't like this big trial and where he had to overcome all of these different obstacles. It was just like, well, he went to war. I mean, that's kind of what he always does. And he was like the same soldier that he always has been, because most of what he does is literally just go from one war to the next to the next. Whereas Odysseus had all again these different trials, like kind of like an underworld journey where he had to beat like if you know you're into video games, like different bosses. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's that's right. And 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 there was I mentioned that I think Plato had to defend whether or Socrates. I'm sorry, had to defend whether whether uh, you know which of them was the better person, and uh, it was a tough sell on Odysseus. Uh, so anyway. Yeah, I'm glad you responded to that. That that uh, that seemed to be a perfect for me. It seemed to be a perfect way to sum up and end the book. And uh, uh, it's always nice to go back to classic literature when you can. Absolutely, with so much to teach us. So, all right, Alan. Final questions for Stuart before we wrap up. Yes, uh, if we wanted to follow you, uh, follow your work, uh, where could we find you? Uh, well, I so I have a very unusual name, Stuart Vise, S-T-U-A-R-T-V-Y-S-E. And so I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, and I'm on, I have a, a website as well, uh, uh, stewardvise.com. So it's pretty easy to find me. Just put the name in the Google machine and it'll come out. Excellent. Stuart, thank you so much for coming thank you so on. Much. Oh, it's my pleasure. You guys, great questions and much good discussion. So thanks a lot for having me. Absolutely, man. Great. We'll talk to you soon. Take okay, care. great. Bye. All right. I have no idea how much time passed. I, yeah, I didn't awesome. even look. I didn't even I look. I didn't look once. So uh, everyone, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and on Twitter at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit the bell hit the on bell. YouTube. And thank you guys so much for watching and see you next time.